Frontsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. This week, a tale of exploration, and it was over some period of time, and at a time when, well, at least for the Europeans, so much of New Zealand was yet to be known in any sort of detail, and we're talking the west coast of the South Island, and a famous name, Thomas Brunner. Jared. Yeah, Thomas Brunner, he's a classic name in our history, and he became an explorer for the Nelson Provincial Government. Now, there were only ever four paid European explorers of the interior of this country. Of course, the coast was well known uh, by the 1840s. Sealers, whalers and seamen had virtually explored all our nooks and crannies, but very few people, including the Māori, knew very much about the interior of the South Island. Now, as I said, he was only one of four paid explorers, Charles Heafy, Charlie Douglas and Julius von Haaster, the other three. But Thomas Brunner, he completed the single greatest piece of European overland exploration in New Zealand. He went with a Maori guide called Kehu, famous in his own right also, but 564 days in this trip down the Buller Gorge and also down the west coast of the South Island and back again. They were away so long, everyone thought they'd just died. Wow, 555 days. That is something, isn't it? Yeah, and down the Buller Gorge. I mean, we just drive down that in a few hours today. But, you know, you can't contemplate how rugged that would have been. And, you know, it rained every day solidly that they were going down. The amazing thing is that 555 days without hearing from them, of course, that's way, way past the time when today search and rescue would be out yeah well that's right and Brunner adapted to being a bushman he was sort of regarded uh, by his superiors as slightly sort of pious and impractical but there was no way that he was like that in the bush he never really was acknowledged in a way for his work and he, he died in 1874 absolutely spent from these explorations that he did aged he was only age 53 he had to retire at 48 because he was just so knackered but let's go back and, and look at this amazing man. We know he was baptised on the 23rd of August in 1821 at Oxford in England. He was the son of William Brunner. He was um, an attorney at law and an Oxford County coroner. And his um, mother was Elizabeth Ann Fraser. But about the age of 15, Brunner began five years of service with Thomas Greenshields of Oxford. Now, this was an architect and surveyor, and it was entirely his father's orchestration, his career. And in March 1841, you know, his father believed in the future of the colonies and he signed his son up for three years with the New Zealand Company. On the 9th of September 1841, he, he arrived at Port Nicholson, that's Wellington, of course, aboard the Whitby, and he, he became the member of a 77-strong advance party for the Nelson Settlement. Now, that party reached Nelson Haven about around the 4th of November. I 
I'll head on dates of October too, but for two years, Brunner assisted in laying out Nelson's sections and roads. Nelson was entirely laid out in square one-acre sections. Some of them are still intact today, actually. He became absolutely enthusiastic in his work, and as he progressed, he started to sort of work further afield, and he showed interest in, in exploring beyond the sort of rings of hills and mountains that isolate Nelson from the rest of the South Island now. In 1843, he, he came back from a, a very remote surveying job, and he, and he said he had Maori intelligence, which he called intelligence, of, a, of an immense inland plain. Now, this is something that earlier forays had been hindered because just the, the, the mountains around Nelson are, are quite something. They, they're a real barrier, and Nelson needed more land than just the plains that it had. All the effort into Nelson had sort of been pushing into Marlborough, but when the Wairau incident happened, more a massacre of course, uh, on the 17th of June 1843, it really put the wind up the settlers of Nelson and they had to look somewhere else. Now, can you tell us just briefly in a nutshell what the Waira incident was? 22 Europeans and four Maori killed when an armed party of the New Zealand Company settlers came storming into Marlborough, actually the Waira Plains, determined that they owned the place. They were brandishing basically, which was a fraudulent uh, title of the purchase of the land. It was later disallowed uh, in the Wairau Valley, but they encountered Tarapraha and his um, allies at uh, Tua Marina, and you can still see this monument as you drive, of course, from Picton to Blenheim, the Wairau Affray, it says. And it was the first significant armed conflict after the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. Now, it started when one of the Europeans excitedly discharged their rifle across the river at the Maoris. Now, the person they killed was Rangi Hayeta's wife. Now, he was the lieutenant, basically, lieutenant of, of Tarapraha, his closest friend and ally, and immediately it went into a bloodbath. The Maoris retaliated. They killed about half the Europeans immediately. The last remaining nine gave up and surrendered. There was an immediate discussion between Tarapraha, who wanted to spare them and send them back. Uh, Arthur Wakefield was one of them, the brother of Edwin Gibbon Wakefield, also a, a Nelson magistrate. There were actually some Quakers amongst them too, who had come to try to peacefully ask the Maori to step aside. Anyway, Rangi Hayata got his way and he went about slaughtering the rest of them. Now, this was seen as an absolute act of barbarity by the settlers of Nelson, who demanded blood now. But William Fox, who was basically the provincial governor at the time, he was a very wise man, and he decided not to, to retaliate because he knew it would become one of the biggest incidents if it did. Basically, the marriage had won, and the Wairau, Plains, where we all have our grape growing today, of course, was out of touch now. And this was the sort of incident, this was the only real big incident in the South Island in its history of Europeans versus Maori. It was quite interesting, but how it's called an affray, I'll never know, because basically it was a terrible bloodbath and it was started by the Europeans without a doubt. 
This was the background to Brunner suddenly becoming interested in exploring elsewhere, and he had got some wind of information that there were these marvellous plains just beyond Nelson. To the south. Yeah, to the south. If only they could find them. There was hardly any information about it. They had a sort of couple of fruitless attempts, but in any way, in 1846, it was February now, Charles Heafy and William Fox recruited Brunner in a month's exploration of the Upper Buller River and its tributaries. Now, this was their first expedition. It took them as far as the Maruia River near Murchison. Now, this was a complete failure because they ran out of food, Graham. There just was no food down there. It was quite astounding. I mean, you hear things about able to get birds every day and stuff, but there was virtually nothing to eat. They came back just starving. Now, on the 17th of March, Brunner, Heafy and Kehu again left Nelson, and this time via Golden Bay. They travelled the length of the west coast as far as Hokitika. Now, this was a spectacular five-month trip. It was where Brunner cut his teeth on survival skills, there wasn't any doubt. Now, there's a 30-kilometre section between... Kaharangi Point and the Hefe River. Man, it's the most inaccessible bit of wilderness coast. I've done it myself. A couple of parties might do it a year if you're lucky, but it's one of the hardest sections of coast. Now, I'll just give you a little bit of background to sort of how they coped with it because they were very good at dealing with the Maori they encountered along the way and yet they never knew if they were going to be hostile or friendly but they got to West Haven Inlet or Wongan West Wanganui Inlet just before Kaharangi Point. The chief came out, his name was Niho and he was furious that these Europeans wanted to carry on down the coast. He said it was his coast and he wasn't going to let them Heafy immediately confronted them. He said, well, we're going to go back, we're going to get in a boat, and we're just going to go down there, so you may as well let us go. Well, immediately Niho and his mates started saying, well, we're going to have to eat you then, and they started sharpening up their tomahawks. They were all laughing and giggling and saying to Hefe via Kehu, of course, that they'd tasted European flesh already and it tasted great. Now, Hefe and Brunner knew they were totally outnumbered. So Hefe pulled his best punch. He put down his gun on his pack and he walked up to Niho's hut and sat there in the entrance and he said, well, I'm disarmed now, and if you kill me, you're a coward. And he said, I'm not leaving this hut until you let us past. Well, Niho was totally flummoxed, and they were starting to argue and, and get more and more carried away. And then suddenly, Brunner pulled out the seven pounds of tobacco they had and quietly started to roll up a smoke. The Maoris were entranced because if there's anything they wanted at that time, it was tobacco. So Hefe divided it up into about half and gave half of it to the Maoris. And as they were busy rolling up, they shot off and jumped in one of the canoes and rowed off across the inlet to escape. But that was just one little story, Grant. That's so funny. That's pretty brave too. Good heavens. Yeah, and they described Niho as like 
looking like a horrible chimpanzee in the London Zoo. <laughs> it's the funniest text that you've ever seen. I mean, you couldn't get away with it today. But anyway, they get down to the Heafy River. They're around a campfire at night, the three of them, and suddenly they feel this presence in the darkness beyond the fire. They can't figure out what it is. Kehu calls out, come out, come out, and we are come in peace. You know, come out and reveal yourselves. And suddenly, out of the darkness come 20 warriors that surround them and they realize that that they want to join in too so they all sit around the campfire too but this was incident after incident like this all the way down not only going past these amazing cliffs and getting around these bluffs that you can't even believe you can get around you can't even climb into the scrub because the kiki is so thick you can't even go two metres in five minutes, that's how thick it is. And this is the sort of country they persevered. But they went all the way down to the Fox River, Franz Joseph River. They determined that Mount Cook was the highest peak in New Zealand. That was the very first Europeans to visit the um, Putini Naitahu settlements at Mafera and Taramakau and the Arahura. I mean, they did some spectacular things, but there was no doubt when they got back that Hefe's future lay in other fields. I mean, he was an artist, a surveyor as well, but he was a he was very good at bush warfare and politics, and that's where he went off. That's where his future lay in the New Zealand wars and everything. So William Fox then persuaded Brunner, who he described as the most zealous explorer, to undertake another exploration and this was the most amazing one that is really in the annals of New Zealand exploration probably the greatest overland exploration in our history. Now Hefe and his famous track did he make that track or was it named after him? No Hefe never went on that track he only went on the coastal section. So he was in a canoe of some sort and sort of just hopping along to see what happened down the coast. Yeah, he only went down the coastal section. And it was, in fact, the Hefe track was always the Wakapoi Gap. And it was known to early gold miners as an early Maori route through. But they also used the coast. Amazingly, the Maoris were very proficient about travelling down that coast. When Brunner and Hefe went down, there were even old rudimentary rope ladders down some of the cliffs. Ah, All right, we'll take a break. When we return, this amazing 550-day overland haul, 1847 through to 1848, and we're talking Thomas Brunner and his guide, Kehu. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Outsiders with Gerard Hindmarsh. This week, a famous name in New Zealand exploration, Thomas Brunner and 550 days. Whoa, that is tough. Uh, Way past sending for search and rescue. But these people made it. And when I say these people, this is Thomas Brunner and his guide Kehu. And we're looking at the exploration of inland West Coast South Island from Nelson South. Jared. Brunner's orders were to continue down the Buller River in search of land for the expansion of Nelson, to explore the west coast and to seek out a pass across the southern Alps. It was quite a big brief. Now, Brunner engaged Kehu again, a trusted Kehu, and a friend of Kehu called Ippi. Now, 
both Māori insisted this time, because they were going to be away so long, they insisted on taking their wives with them. Now, this later caused Brunner a huge amount of anguish. You just don't take your wives on exploration, Graham, even in those days. But anyway, they convinced Brunner that they had to. Now, Fox outlaid eight pounds and sixpence for the Maori's clothing, eight pounds fourteen shillings for Brunner's clothing, and twenty pounds three shillings and ten pence for provisions for the trip. Each guide was to receive five pounds on the return of the party. Now it's interesting to note that the food they took, this is the list, biscuits, tea, sugar, salt, pepper and the equivalent of 50 kilos of flour. They also had two guns, powder and shot, a cooking pot, knives, tomahawk matches and exactly seven kilos of tobacco which was about double what they took on that previous exploration. On the 3rd of December Brunner was ready and he joined his guides at Waimea West. Now he engaged a man to help them over the Motueka range before they reached John Fraser's station. Now this was the furthest outpost of Nelson at the time, up the Motueka Valley. Now Fraser kindly supplied them with a mule, a spare mule he had to help carry the heavy loads as far as Lake Rotuiti. There they divided the 68 kilogram load and they Cross the Rotuiti River on the 15th of December and they slept in an old shelter on the Howard River. Now, all were affected by dysentery at this stage, but they pushed on to Lake Rotoroa. Where is this? There are so many Rotoitis and Rotoroas. Well, big lake and small lake, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, whereabouts are these? That's the Nelson Lakes National Park now. Lake Rotoiti and Lake Rotoroa is the furthest one away. Okay. They were busy getting ready for the next stage of it. They were busy drying fern root and preparing for the assault on the buller. Now, Brunner was going incredibly Maori now in his provisions. He realised this was the way to do it. The walking was terrible, but worse was to face them in the months ahead. Now, to appreciate the feats of these people, it must be remembered that civilised life uh, most of the life in the, in the in New Zealand was dotted around the coast, but the interior was entirely hostile. There were sort of rainforests and penetrable ranges and ravines, swift rivers. Just today, you can never sort of appreciate what it was like. Kehu was to Brunner, as he called him, the Prince of Bushmen, and he'd had a tough life, Kehu. He'd had to run away from slaughtering enemies when his tribe, the Nati Kamakokari, they were conquered, if you like, by northern tribes. He'd been one on the run, and he'd lived to, to fight another day, but the Maori warrior, he, he really was superb, and he passed on all his skills and they came in the form of wickers. He knew how to pack them in kilt bags. That's what they took with them at the start. They dried eels and white bait in the sun and they added to fresh eels caught in their journey. Used the berries of, of totra and kaikatea. They dried fern root. Live birds of course like pigeons, tuis, wickers they would be all snared by traditional means and then along the coast they collected seabird eggs and shellfish and all their fires were lit by the friction of dry sticks. They knew how to make flax ropes to overcome bluffs and cliffs and rafts of wood or raupo or, or flax stalks. Of course, 80 flax stalks supported a man. 
uh, across any fresh river. The Maoris never drowned, only Europeans drowned. Brunner learnt that very, very quickly. Yeah, the New Zealand death it was called, wasn't it? Exactly. Now, 16 days after leaving Lake Rotoroa, Brunner reached a shelter that had been built by Hefe Fox and himself the year before. Now, this is on the banks of the Matakaitaki River near Murchison. Now, from here, it was totally unexplored territory. So they spent several days drying their clothes and kits and they laid out all their stores of fern root and eels before setting off again on the 25th of January entirely dry. Now, the next week it just teemed down. It was a tale of freshers in every river, the incessant rain, lack of shelter. They were soaked again and all their provisions were spoilt. They could hardly keep their flour dry and they actually returned back to the Matakaitaki just totally flummoxed. By 18th of February, after delays, they'd taking up sort of lane and food and waiting for the rain to clear, they, they started off again. Now, Brunner's pack consisted of a gun. He, he kept quite a good journal, uh, three kilos of shot, uh, three and a half kilos of tobacco, two tomahawks, two pairs of boots, because they wore out boots quite quickly in this country, five shirts, four pairs of trousers, a rug, a blanket, and 14 kilos of fern root, which was now replacing all their flour. They found walking incredibly difficult. The granite rocks were all covered with tutu and brushwood and their rain. And they made two kilometres a day, about a, a mile and a quarter, a mile and a half. That was good going. Mm. And there's something about being in that dense bush too. You can't see. If you don't have an outlook point... I don't know how anyone knows where they're going. No, exactly. They just knew that the water goes down to the sea. I guess eventually oh, they'd right. come out. But, you know, as you're driving down the Buller Gorge, you can get a sense it's going to finish. But, man, if you start in there, you've got to walk down. And he wrote in his journal, I'm getting sick of this exploring the walking and the dietary both being so bad that were it not for the shame of the thing, I would return to the more comfortable quarters of the Rewalka Valley. Of course, if he could have known what lay ahead, he, he would have swallowed his shame and just returned to Nelson. <laughs> but anyway, by the end of February, the going got even worse. They were up against steep, rugged rocks, bush, and always covered with a thick underbrush and briar, which was probably bush lawyer. The bush was almost impassable, and and uh, there was always dead timber and tra- fallen trees and moss everywhere that, you know, made them slip up, and they were now deep in the Buller Gorge. Now, this is between Murchison and Nangahua. On the 1st of March, <clears throat> they consumed their last handful of flour that they had, and used to thicken a pot of soup. And this is what Brunner said, This is without exception the very worst country I have ever seen in New Zealand. Not a bird to be had or seen, and the few fish there are in the river will not bite during rain or during a fresh. They spent two weeks clawing their way along the river gorge, literally clawing their way, soaked by the rain and and shortage of food. Always rains a lot in autumn too down there. And they had to leave the river very briefly and uh, climb a ridge to sort of see where they were going. And their brunner saw a break in the mountains, all that was all around them. And it was to the southwest that he 
he correctly identified it as the Anangahua Valley, and this was the place to go. Now, the following morning, Brunner was seriously ill. Now, can you tell us how long have they been uh, away from any other civilization in this bush in this particular trip? How, how long are we through? Oh, nearly four months at this stage. Oh, heavens. But that's just the start of it. Yeah, incredibly, like, just tedious. Now, Brunner was violently ill. The Maoris described this to his fern root diet. They said it was common, and he wrote in his journal, I really believe two or three miles is the utmost that could be accomplished under the most favourable circumstances in this environment. And he said large granite rocks heaped confusingly together all over the surface. There's a thick growth of underbush and briar, an immense quantity of dead and rotten timber, and all these on the steep and broken declivities of a range of high mountains interspersed with perpendicular walls of rock, precipitous and deep ravines. They form a combination of difficulties which must be encountered to be adequately understood and allowed for. Now, illness started to strike the others too, the Maori woman and Brunner. So they did take their wives? Yeah, they took these two women with them. I mean, they didn't want to leave them very long, these Maoris, and they felt that they could be of some assistance. Now, these Maori women now became ill too. Now, Brunner suspected influenza. Now, that's possibly unusual because they'd been so far out of civilization for so long. How would they have got that? But oh, there are a million things that are described as flu-like symptoms. That's right. But, you know, shelter was so difficult to find. They found the odd leaning totra tree or a rock overhang or a bivouac they sort of made from branches and leaves, but they lacked any waterproof materials and they were forced to take shelter from heavy rain all the time to sort of uh, risk damage to their food supplies. Now, by the middle of March, Brunner was fearful. He said, our fern root is almost exhausted and no food is to be found anywhere. I do not relish gradual starvation of one meal of fern root in 24 hours. Now they were up to about six months, all terribly ill. Kehu was uh, probably the strongest amongst them. I think about a month is about the longest anybody has been found alive in these sort of conditions. This is an incredible feat. It is, it really is. And he said, you know, they continued to get iller, particularly one of the women, but Brunner would not hear of a suggestion of leaving her to a, to his fate. As one of them suggested, he wrote, rain continuing, dietary shorter, strength decreasing by the day, spirits falling, prospects now fearful. Okay, we'll take a short break and when we return, the remainder of this 550-day journey inland, West Coast, South Island, the work of Thomas Brunner, his guide Kehu, and the team that went with him. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Outsiders with Gerard Hindmarsh. Today, the story of Thomas Brunner, uh, the first European to see a lot of this area in, inland, west coast of the South Island, south of Nelson, just going off to find out what is there. Because the government said, would you be up for it? And he said, yeah, OK, oh boy try it. Nobody has survived more than about a month in these sort of conditions. You know, when they've gotten lost by accident, these people are doing it on purpose. Five, six months in, 
nobody's feeling very well, Jared. No. March today, instead of coming down in drops, Brunner wrote, the rain fell in a regular sheet of water and we were all busy employed in just keeping the spark of fire alive. Everything about us is soaking wet. He said, finished our stock of sugar and tea and I felt I was fast losing all my English diet. Early April, it saw a sort of a lift in their spirits, actually. The rain sort of cleared, and they were nearing Anangahua, and definitely more wildlife now. Kehu gave them full stomachs for the first time in weeks when he returned with, on one expedition with eels, weka, and a fio, which is a blue duck. And on the evening of 8th of April, Brunner saw the Paparoa Ranges, and he recognised them as bordering the coast. So definitely their spirits were rising now. This is about six months in. A weka cry sent two Maoris into the bush and they returned in the evening laden with 10 wekas, uh, 6 kaka, 3 teal and 14 kakapo. Now this was a sumptuous feast and Brunner wrote down his first real find, 8,000 hectares of good farming land potential. So things were sort of starting to come right. 14 kakapo, isn't that incredible? Oh, incredible. And, you know, as they always said, a, a pigeon is a good lunch, a kakapo a good dinner. Uh, the mountains tight against the river's edge, but they had to climb continually to follow the river down, even though that they were onto better country. And May was more rain and blowing all the time, and the river came a torrent, and it drove them out of their shelters in the, in the rain to pass the night how they could. Oh, it was just shocking. And then they ran out of salt. They were now almost entirely on a Maori diet. It rained eight days solid at this point, and the, the hungry Maori now were eyeing Brunner's dog as the food source, but... Brunner resisted totally. He said, no, you're not going to eat my dog. And then finally he wrote, desperately weak, he wrote, I was compelled, though very reluctantly, to give my consent to killing my dog, Rover. This episode earned Brunner the name of Kaikuri, which is dog eater, amongst his friends. So the party was over its last major obstacle and they made reasonable progress now in level but densely wooded country and they they lived mainly on uh, pigeon and eel and he wrote we are still on the brink of starvation in an enormous and dense forest too thick in places to see our way from the quantity of supplejack briar kiki with deep moss rotten timber and pools of water covering the surface of the entire forest and he said, we camped in the bush and I passed one of the coldest nights I ever recollect. I was one complete shiver all night, perhaps as much from hunger as from cold. Yeah, I can imagine the degree of calories out to calories in. Yeah. But, you know, three days later, Brunner heard of the first time the roar of the sea. He said it was as good as dinner. And on the 3rd of June, they saw the tide rise in the river. They laid out some breakfast that they were going to have. Rats stole it in the night. So they started on the 4th of June without eating. They travelled about two miles and they saw the first pa of the Maoris uh, at present day Westport. But it was empty of people and provisions. Where they'd gone to, who knows. But he wrote, 
So, after many days and nights looking forward to a full meal of potatoes, on reaching the coast, we were compelled to eat the rimu or seaweed instead. Yesterday, I should have thought seaweed poisonous, or nearly so, but now I eat it with a relish. So much for hunger. Right. Where are they? Just down south of Westport now. Okay. Heading down the coast. Things are looking a little bit up now, but totally he had given up all his European ways. And this this area just south of Westport, um, I mean, there is evidence of a par, and so this is inhabited, right? Yeah, that's right. But they didn't find anyone there. They'd been out collecting mussels, actually. And they gave Brunner a very warm welcome when they returned. Really um, threw up their morale, actually. Brunner started south from there again for Mafera. Now, that's Greymouth. And he was now accompanied by some of the coast Maori. And it was comfortable walking along after the all the privations of the Buller River. There were heaps of fern root now that he'd actually developed a kind of a relish for. Now, July, he had his first feast of potatoes, and he, he, he encountered some Maori from the East Coast who had just walked over the Alps. Now, this confirmed for the first time the existence of a pass. They had more potatoes feasting at Tara Macau. That's now Shantytown, just by Shantytown there. This is where Kehu and Epi refused to go any further south. On the 12th of October, getting close to a year away, uh, Brunner set out with four Coast Maori, new comrades now. And over the next two weeks, all the fords were chin deep at least. They finally reached Okarito. Now, food became an absolute preoccupation with Brunner and he made many observations of the of Maori way of life, one of which would make I think Gourmet's envious, he said, this is what he wrote, white bait into the rivers in such quantities that I have seen dogs standing on the back banks and just lapping them up from the stream. The natives take large number, which they lay on flax mats and expose to the sun three or four days. Then they pack them and preserve them in the storehouses for winter use. That was quite an interesting little comment. Yeah how things used to be. How plentiful they were in places. Okay, so November, uh, nearly a year into his trip, or about a year into his trip, Brunner um, came uh, alongside the glaciers, Fox and Franz Joseph, but he didn't hear about their existence or have any inclination about them. It was interesting that he just missed them. And he was in such a buoyant mood now, he said, I believe I have now acquired the two greatest requisites of Bushmen in New Zealand, the capability of walking barefoot and the proper method of cooking and eating fern root. I had often looked forward with dread to a time when my shoes would be worn out, often fearing I should be left a barefoot cripple in some desolate black birch forest or on this deserted coast but now I can trudge along merrily barefoot or with a pair of native sandals called by the natives pariari made of the leaves of flax or what is more durable the leaves of the tea or flax tree I can make a sure footing in crossings and ascending or descending precipices in fact I feel I am just beginning to make exploring easy work. A good pair of sandals will last two days and they only take about 20 minutes to make. 
Interesting, these sandals. They used to just weave them on their feet, and they were fantastic. If they were coming up to hard country, they just weave themselves uh, some sandals. I'd like to see that done. Yeah, wouldn't it be great? It's a lost art, Graham. Is it? Yeah, uh, most Maoris walk bare feet, but they didn't punish themselves if they got to sharp rocks or, or coastal things situations sometimes. Now, 16th of November, Brunner reached Haringa. Basically, his journey south ended, and he he was washed off a rock, and his, his foot was injured here, actually. He was down at the sea, and he was in great pain from his strained ankle. And I'm surprised there haven't been more injuries. That's easy to do. Oh, I know, and he had to actually crawl back to Baringa where the Coast Marys had a summer par. Now, for a whole week he couldn't move, and then it rained for 10 days. On the West Coast? Yeah. What are the chances? Funny that, isn't it? He was now 130 kilometres further south than he'd come with Hefe. Now, Brunner was still hoping to find a, a, an Alpine pass from Tara Macau as he started back, but on the 15th of December, he, he, he limped north, and he noted in his journal then that he'd, it had been a year since he'd left Fraser on the banks of the Rotoiti River, and he said, this was the last white person I had seen. So he hadn't seen a white person for over a year. Isn't that amazing? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Now, he rested a month here at Mafera. This is Greymouth. Uh, he was hoping to meet up with Kehu. He was away on a fishing party further north. And on the 26th of January, they finally left by canoe up the Grey River. Now, this was where he discovered a fine seam of coal. And, of course, this is now the coal field, which is named after him. Probably the biggest economic thing in the South Island, the Brunner Coal Field. Ah. And uh, it was a significant event because they weren't only trying to find land, they were trying to find resources. And this was basically his greatest achievement. They turned here up the Arnold River, a tributary of the Grey, and they came to a shallow lake, or they thought it was reasonably shallow. Now, this was the greatest lake on the west coast, Lake Brunner, named after him, of course. And he learned from his coast guides that the lake was often frequented by Māori on their way back to the east coast. He uh, was told it was a two-day trip to the open country beyond the mountains. So now he knew found another pass as well. He was on to it now, and uh, things were really looking up. He had come to look for these things, and he was now starting to find them. Anyway, they left the coast at the beginning of February, and they set off along the banks of the Grey River and they followed the basically the present route of the Reefton to Greymouth Highway where it goes now and food was plentiful and many places they used Maori shelters and but by the middle of February they left the Grey and they were pushing along the Marafiriti River they negotiated a low ridge which separates the river from Reefton and then entered the Anangahua River watershed. Now, this was a different way of going back. Explored some of the way up towards Springs Junction, presumably the Victoria Range he was describing, and he could see the grassy plains of the east coast. He was, in fact, looking at the Lewis Pass area and beyond here. Right. He'd come on this broad sort of elliptical route, if you like. His guides, they didn't want to attempt an alpine crossing because by this time it was March and winter was approaching. They knew that. They did. They dreaded another struggle along the banks of the Buller, but the Marys insisted that their best chance of food lay along the rivers. They didn't want to go into the mountains. 
So they headed back down near Nangahua towards Buller and progress was quite good. They reached the Buller on the 23rd of March and they were now on the opposite bank to their outward journey and they noticed that their going was sort of easier. However, soon after they struck what Brunner described the worst walking to be found in New Zealand and April brought the worst rain again for days on end and Brunner discarded the rags he was wearing for his last pair of trousers. He had now even hardly had any clothes. He just worn them all out. 15th of April, this was uh, quite serious for Brunner. He mysteriously lost the entire use of his side. Oh, well, this is worrying. We'll find out. Is this a stroke? Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh, the amazing feat of these people, and the European, Thomas Brunner. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless, on Radio Live. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh, the story of Thomas Brunner and the exploration uh, inland, well, all over, coastal and inland, but basically go Nelson south. And uh, he was entrusted with trying, at least, to find either good land and a pass across, another pass across the Alps. We're talking 1847 and 1848, 555 days. That is uh, some achievement. Has had guides, but the going's rough for the natives and the Europeans alike. Now, he's found that uh, the going is particularly tough. He's He's gone numb down one side. Has he had a stroke? What the hell has happened? Yeah, he and mysteriously, as he puts it, lost the entire use of his side. And by the next morning, he couldn't even move at all. He lay immobile for a whole week as Kehu tried to keep the group Fed now, 22nd of April, he could sort of stand, this was a week later, he could stand just on one leg and they decided to continue. He found a good stick and and using Kehu's sort of arm, he battled on and food was scarce and Kehu returned usually empty-handed. But the party, um, they reached the Maruia and they had to go up river to find a suitable ford because they could not find any materials for a raft. He wrote... We had empty stomachs also, been without supper, nor had we anything for breakfast. So they reached the old shelter they'd used up the Matakaitaki, and, but Brunner was uh, deteriorating. He wrote, I am again feeling much pain in my side and unable to use it, my eye and hand now also much affected. So, you know, it didn't seem to stop him. It's amazing, isn't it? This, uh, it couldn't have been anything but a stroke, one side of him. He wasn't improving at all, he wrote, I am also taken ill with a violent retching lasting all day and night with my side gave me much pain. I attribute it to the bad living and the cold weather, both clothes and food been very scanty. It took the party going this slow, Graham, until early June to reach uh, Lake Rotorua again where they found the canoe. They found a canoe for crossing the lake. I think that's the one they'd actually used. They'd stashed it. By the 9th of June, they'd reached the Howard River again and they managed to make maybe two kilometres a day at the most, just basically Kehu helping them. And, and despite the easier going, it took another six days before they finally knocked on Settler Fraser's door again. Now, 
Settler Fraser, he just couldn't believe their appearance. They looked so emaciated. It was a year and a half after setting out on the great journey, as Brunner later called it, that he'd seen them again. He just couldn't believe that they'd turned up. Everyone thought they were dead. Brunner actually recuperated reasonably well. In 1848, he was accompanied by Kehu again. Uh, and another survey, and he explored all the known passes between Nelson and Marlborough. And he, In the same year? Yeah, about a year after they got back, he explored all the known passes between Nelson and Marlborough, and he probed new ones in the race that now was on, of course, to find the best route to Canterbury, where Nelson settlers could get their stock on the uh, down on the vast runs that were being established. And these were Brunner's very last forays into the New Zealand backcountry. He was very much a weakened man now. His last years were quite interesting. He wasn't really acknowledged. He, he retired unusually early. and he, he retired in 1869. He was kept on by the provincial government as a consultant surveyor, but he was, he was regarded as sort of rather impractical by his superiors. Now, rather impractical was the term they used, and... The inaccurate state of the Nelson survey. Now, this had been re-examined by a major Palmer um, in 1875, and they'd found Brunner had made a few errors. He was sort of almost dismissed as slightly, mm, how can I say it, not incompetent, but he'd made a few mistakes. Brunner, he died at Nelson on the 22nd of April, 1874, uh, and his funeral was at the Nelson Cathedral. It was attended by several hundred people, including a large Maori contingent, and Kehu was the chief mourner. He said, are the rocks of the Buller Gorge and the surf-driven coast of South Westland. Yeah, and the famous lake now, too. That's right, and, uh, and I think, you know, that's pretty apt, actually. He was only 53 when he died. And he was just a spent man, basically, from that expedition. And I think every time I just drove down the Buller Gorge about two weeks ago, I gave a talk in Westport, actually, and I still think of Brunner every time I go down the Buller Gorge. How could you have done this? And I think yeah. that, that that gorge still sort of bears witness to the greatest single piece of overland exploration in New Zealand's European history. Yeah, when you travel that area by car it's always nice to remember these people and just appreciate the outrageous luxury of a surveyed flat road and the comfort of being inside a car that's going forward yeah exactly and all those lands well they i suppose all those planes through murchison and stuff they all part of his discovery if you like if you can call it a discovery but uh, you know, we we owe it to, to Brunner and uh, Heathy also in an earlier way, but Brunner particularly just for his zealousness and persevering. What a character. Yeah, and Kehu as well. Yeah, Kehu. It's a bit like Cook, you know, he couldn't have come out here if he didn't have to pie. Well, the same with Brunner. He wouldn't have been able to do it yeah. if it hadn't been for Kehu, a great man. All right. What a fascinating tale of endurance. It beggars belief really, that type of area, and it's it's not very survivable today. No, and to think he got, what did he get? A five-pound bonus when he returned. Wow. Today, the story of Thomas Brunner. Thank you very much. We'll talk again soon. Cheers, bro.